Today we find ourselves in Luke chapter 20 from verse 41 down to verse 44, but let me read for us beginning in verse 39. This is what God's word says. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he, that is Jesus, said to them, How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, just as we sang earlier, so it is our prayer now that you would show us Christ. O oh God, would you by your Spirit reveal your glory through the preaching of your word until every heart confesses Jesus Christ is Lord. In his name we ask this. Amen. One of the universal truths to which we can all attest, just based on our human experience, is that life poses many questions. Uh, We live in a world where we are faced with far more questions than we can find answers for them. Uh, Even King Solomon, the the wisest man who ever lived, he came to realize in Ecclesiastes 8.17 that no one can really comprehend all the things that happen under the sun. All the things that go on on earth in our, in our lives. Uh, you know, well, why, why does the world work this way and not that way? Why do, why do things like this happen? Uh, why, why has God done this or that? Why did he allow such and such thing to happen in my life? That's our experience, isn't it? But though we find ourselves in a sea of questions, there's really only one question that we need to ask. A question that can be answered. And if we can arrive and rest at the right answer, then it will be well with our souls. And the question is this, a very simple question. Who is Jesus? Who exactly is this man born as a Jew in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago? Who is he really? Uh, Perhaps some of you here today, you may have been around in the circle and environment of people who talk about Jesus, perhaps even your whole life. Uh, You've been in churches where songs are sung about Jesus. You're quite well acquainted with this Jesus. You can probably regurgitate a lot of facts about Jesus. But even so, you, you may have never asked and answered this most basic question for yourself head on with your own thoughts and the honesty of your conscience. Who is this Jesus that I keep hearing about, that I keep finding myself in the vicinity of, that I keep learning about? Who is he? Who do I see him as and know him to be? It's our answer to this one simple question, which is the thing that defines our lives and the eternity that is to come. And so really at the heart of it, You know, the the central existential question for man, for humanity, is not, who am I? But it's, who is he? And beloved, the answer to that question of who is Jesus is that this man, Jesus, is God. 
This ancient Jewish man is the one who created man, who made you and me. And it is the basic Christian confession that Jesus is God, the Lord of all creation, the majesty of heaven and earth. And that, my friends, is the greatest comfort. Because this means everything. And this explains everything of all that we need to know in this life. That we can come to know God when we look into the face of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And all of our hope and meaning and all the truth concerning heaven and earth is found in him. And so it is this same question that Jesus himself asks every individual heart in this room. Who am I? Who do you say that I am? Not who do the people around you say that I am? Not who, 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 who do who, your, your pastors say that I am? Your parents? Your friends? Your congregation? But who do you say that I am? And it's this question that's at the heart of this brief little passage in Luke chapter 20, to which we've turned this morning. If you recall... What, what we've been seeing throughout this chapter, Luke chapter 20, is, is Jesus being tested and challenged left and right by his opponents. And, and thus far, Jesus had been bombarded with all kinds of questions raised by the Jewish leaders, disingenuous questions, mind you. Uh, they weren't asking these questions sincerely out of a desire to learn and understand the truth of God, but they were loaded questions designed to trap Jesus and use his words against him. Kind of like what happens a lot in the realm of politics or, or media. And of course, as we've seen, Jesus handedly refuted all of their attempts. He, he never played into their, their insidious games, but demonstrated supreme wisdom and divine truth such that every mouth was stopped. And having done all of that, now here in verse 41, Jesus turns the table. He is the one Asking the questions now. And the question he poses to them is this. How can they say that the Christ or the Messiah, it's the same word, just in different languages. Christ is a Greek word. Messiah is a Hebrew word. In English, they both mean the anointed one. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? That's an interesting question. Because of course, the title, Son of David, is indeed a messianic title. Because it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God made a promise to King David that, that, that through one of his sons, through one of his descendants, God would establish an everlasting kingdom. It was a promise of the Messiah. I mean, think about it. When's the last time we've seen an everlasting kingdom on earth that has never passed away? Never. Because kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Every kingdom, every nation, even this one, has an expiration date. And so what God had promised to David in 2 Samuel 7 of an everlasting kingdom through one of his sons, this was a supernatural heavenly hope, an eternal promise. And so that's why we, we see throughout the Gospels, people understand this title, Son of David, to be referring to the Messiah, the one God promised to David. That's why people call out to Jesus saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Or, or, or saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. You see, these were all cries of faith. 
recognizing Jesus as the promised Messiah. And so, yes, in fact, the Christ is David's son. That, that is the identifying mark of the promised Messiah from the Old Testament, that he would be a descendant of David. But the question Jesus was pressing upon them was this. How can you say that the Messiah is just a descendant of David? And nothing but that. That is to say, do you think that the Messiah was to be only a human figure, merely David's descendant in the flesh. That at the end of the day, the Messiah is but a man, a great man, but still a man. You see, the reason Jesus raises this question is because the unbelief that he's had to deal with for the three years of his public ministry till at this point was the, the refusal of the Jewish crowds to acknowledge and submit to the undeniable truth of Jesus' divinity. That he is not just a man. That he is not just a rabbi. That he's not just another teacher. But time and time again, Jesus demonstrated that he is very God himself. That's why I remember when the paralytic was brought to Jesus. It's in the, the three Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three. Uh, we saw this earlier, if you remember, a couple of years ago when we studied Luke chapter 5, that when the paralytic was brought to Jesus, the first thing Jesus said to him when he looked upon him was, your sins are forgiven. And when the scribes and the Pharisees, they heard Jesus say this, they all, in their inner thoughts, they repudiated him. And they said to themselves in their thoughts, who is this blasphemer? Who can forgive sins? Who can say that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Exactly. Bingo was his name of. That's the point. Jesus was saying that intentionally, declaring himself to be the one true God who has the authority to forgive sins. And, and Jesus, knowing their thoughts, because he is God, exercising divine power in that moment, he said to them, hey, I hear what you're saying in your own thoughts. Why do you question in your hearts? Tell me, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven? Or, to this paralytic man, get up and walk. Now, which is easier to say? Well, if you think about it, it's the former that's easier to say, because it's hard to prove or to disprove the, the efficacy of that statement, your sins are forgiven. How will we know if that actually came to pass? I don't know. We'll have to wait till the end when we all stand before God to find out if our sins really were forgiven. But saying, get up and walk to a paralytic is the harder thing to say because from a human perspective, it's very easy to tell if those words carry any weight or authority at all. Because if the guy doesn't get up and walk, then it's immediately obvious that this whole thing was a sham. And those are empty words. But then what does Jesus say? He says, But that you may know, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say to you, paralytic, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately, the man got up. Instantly miraculously healed. Look, 
Jesus was not just going around teaching people be nice to each other, to instill good values in them, teach them R-E-S-P-E-C-T, respect. He wasn't interested in just starting a nice new religion among many. No, he was authoritatively revealing his true deity and summoning souls to come to him because he is God. And yet, the Jewish leaders and crowds, they refused to believe over and over again. So much so that it was actually, it was Jesus' claim to be God that made them want to kill him. John 5.18 says this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They couldn't stand the thought of Jesus being God. Now, now why? We might ask. Why was there such visceral reaction against the thought of Jesus being God? Because if it were true, which they didn't want it to be true, but if it were true, then they'd be held accountable to him. You know, it's for the same reason that people today don't want to believe that Jesus is God. I mean, some are happy to applaud him as a good teacher, as an exemplar of good moral values. But as soon as they are confronted with the notion that this Jesus is God Almighty, the inner resistance comes to the surface. Because then they'd have to submit to him. Because then they'd be held accountable to him. Because then they can't just keep hearing him from a distance. But they would have to actually listen to him and obey him and do as he commands. You see, this is the sensitive nerve that Jesus was striking with this question. Asking the scribes, Are you sure that the Messiah whom God promised... The Messiah you're all waiting for is just a son of David, merely a human descendant of his flesh and nothing more. Have you been reading your Bible carefully? He asked them. What kind of Messiah did God promise? I mean, hey, you guys are supposed to be uh, the experts in the law, right? Experts in the Old Testament. Okay, then tell me. How is it that the consensus among you folks is that the Christ is David's son only? Have you read Psalm 110 properly? Because there, if we read carefully, we would see that the deity of Christ is not just some novel concept invented by the Christian church, but that it was foretold and promised from the Old Testament. And so as Jesus turns their attention to Psalm 110, we should turn, uh, turn our attention there too. Turning your Bibles with me to Psalm 110, we'll do a little inductive Bible study of this psalm with Jesus being our Bible study teacher from Luke chapter 20. And as you turn there to Psalm 110, let me remind us again that God's promise to send the Messiah is found in a number of passages in the Old Testament. But as it pertains to this specific title of being the son of David, that promise is found in 2 Samuel 7 of a coming king who would rule and reign forever on the throne of David, being a descendant of David. And Psalm 110 is a psalm that elaborates on that promise. Uh, Psalm 110 is considered a messianic psalm, although really every psalm is messianic because every verse of the Old Testament and New Testament is pointing to the Messiah, Jesus. But when people say that Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm, What they mean is that it's a very explicitly and conspicuously 
clear psalm that talks about the Messiah and the Christ. It, 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 is, it is foreshadowing and looking ahead to the Christ in a focused and direct manner. And we can tell when we read the first couple verses, the first verse which Jesus quoted, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now notice here the obvious language of kingly rule and triumph. This psalm is describing the Messiah, the promised king, and the absolute victory that he will have just as God promised to David. He will reign forever. Now there's something we have to understand about the biblical text, particularly uh, with, with respect to the book of Psalms, that in our English translations, you'll see that verse 1 starts at, the Lord says to my Lord. But that's not actually where the biblical text begins. Because if you notice right above that, there is in capital letters, this superscript, it says, a Psalm of David. That's the actual first verse. And uh, whenever you read the Psalms, you can't skip over the superscript because... Not all the Psalms have it, but when they have it, you have to understand that that's equally part of the original text. It's, it's the inspired word of God. And oftentimes, when a Psalm has that little bit of information, it gives us a very important piece of information, just as it does in Psalm 110. Because, as concise and uh, succinct as it is, what this tells us is that David is the one writing this Psalm. That's why Jesus says in Luke chapter 20, for David himself says in the book of Psalms and goes on to quote the first verse. And so King David here is the one testifying to these words. This is David's prophecy. It's what he is seeing prophetically through the Holy Spirit who's revealing this to him. Now, why is this important to know? Because with this in mind, we can start to get a feel for the scene that is being depicted here in Psalm 110. Because what's happening here is that David is a spectator of a conversation that is happening outside of him. A conversation between the Lord and my Lord, that is David's Lord. Now, before we move forward, let me just explain this one other thing, which is you may have noticed when you read the Old Testament in our English Bibles, In the Old Testament, whenever we come across the word Lord, it happens in one or two ways. It may be in, as you see here in verse 1 at the beginning, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in all capital letters, L-O-R-D, that is actually the divine name Yahweh. Okay, Or you may have heard it as Jehovah. It's the same thing, it's the same name. It's the name that God revealed to Israel through Moses when Uh, He asked, what is your name? God said, my name is Yahweh. That's what's being represented by the capital L-O-R-D. I don't have time to get into all the technical explanations for why the name Yahweh is represented in those capital letters. It's a very, very technical discussion. And so if you're really curious, you can ask me after service. But don't say I didn't warn you. You may fall asleep standing up. But suffice to say, you just need to know that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Old Testament is representing what's in the biblical text of Hebrew, Yahweh, God's name, okay? But when you see, when you come across capital L and then lowercase O-R-D, just as you see in verse 1, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, lowercase O-R-D, 
That's the actual word, not name, but the word Lord, okay, or master. Uh, you may have heard the underlying word Adon or Adonai. That's what it is. It's frequently used of God to call him the Lord God, the Lord Most High, oh, the sovereign master of the universe. And so keeping this in mind, coming back to Psalm 110, again, remember, David is the one writing this psalm. He is witnessing a conversation that is happening outside of him. He's a prophetic spectator, if you will. And what we see is that David hears and witnesses this conversation. The Lord says to my Lord, but notice it's the Lord in all capital letters. So it's Yahweh who is speaking to my Lord, lowercase O-R-D, who is the my. The my is David of me, David, because David, it's me. I'm the one writing this. And so it's to David's Lord that Yahweh, God, promises all of his enemies to be put under his feet. This Lord of David to whom Yahweh speaks is the one who will rule with the mighty scepter because he is the Christ, the Messiah, the coming son of David. But pause here for a moment and ask, how's that possible? How can David's future descendant, one who would be born after him, one who had yet to be born as he writes this, how can David's future descendant be one who ranks before him such that David calls him his own Lord, though he was not yet born, let alone the big elephant in the room? How in the world is David hearing his future yet unborn descendant, hearing him in his conversation with God? How about that? How is it that the one born after him ranks so far before him and is before him? But that's the very thing that John the Baptist himself testified, wasn't it? As he was announcing Jesus' arrival, he said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, John was born before Jesus, remember? He was born six months before. He was Jesus' cousin. And John's public ministry began before Jesus' did. And yet he was before me, John says. Because he is not a mere man, as I am. Although he is truly man, real human flesh and blood. But he is one who is eternal. Outside of time. One whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. He is the one who would himself later testify... Before Abraham was, I am. Hence, David could prophetically witness this conversation of his Lord before his Lord was born into the world because the Lord of David is our creator who came down to us from eternity, entered into time and space as a human being. That's what David was prophetically revealing in Psalm 110. Yes, God promised a human savior and king, one of his future descendants. But this future son of his preceded David himself because he is the image of the invisible God. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together because he is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, that in everything he might be preeminent. The son of David is the Lord God Almighty, a true man who is very God himself. And so, as Jesus says in verse 44, Luke 20, David thus called him Lord. That's why David called him Lord. And didn't Jesus' disciples know this? That's why when Jesus calmed the storm, what did his disciples instinctively say? Who then is this? They didn't ask this because they didn't know who Jesus was. They had been with him. They were on the boat with him. They were already following Jesus. But that moment when they witnessed with their eyes, Jesus commanding the wind and the waves to be silent and instantly they ceased. They then said, who then is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? He is not just a man, though he is a man just like us, but he must be the holy God veiled in human flesh. You see, this wondrous mystery was what was foretold and revealed in Psalm 110 verse 1. What David witnessed was God the Father speaking to God the Son. It was a conversation, a holy conversation within the Godhead, within the triune self of God. God speaking within himself. And so the son of David is in fact the eternal son of God who is one with the Father. And so all this begs the question, how can you say that the Christ is nothing but David's son, just a human figure? And again, that same question that Jesus posed to them, it is critical that we face that same question and answer it for ourselves. Who is the Christ exactly? Friends, who is Jesus to you? Is he just a religious figure? Is he just an influential teacher? Or do you know him and believe him to be the Lord God Almighty, the Lord of King David? Is Jesus just a nice guy, some helpful guide? Or do you recognize him as your maker before whom you will stand one day to give an account of your life? You know, a great danger that befalls churches everywhere is that many enter the doors to hear and learn of Jesus and all these stories about him, maybe even hear what he has done for sinners. They hear about the cross, his death, his resurrection. And yet somehow all along, it just never registers in their minds the truth of his deity, that he is God Almighty. And therefore, his words are absolutely authoritative over our lives. That he is one to whom we must bow down. One whom we must obey and before whom we ought to lay down our crowns at his feet. 
Listen, you can tolerate Jesus. You can study Jesus. You can even enjoy his teaching and yet fail to see him as David foresaw him and knew him as my Lord. But friends, this is who Jesus really is. True God of true God before all ages. Light from light of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. I mean, take a look at the transfiguration. We're on that mountain before the eyewitness of Peter, James, and John. The veil of Jesus' humanity was momentarily unveiled that his true divine glory might be revealed. Because there on that mountain as Jesus was praying, it says that he was suddenly transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as light. It's not because he got a wardrobe change, but it's because his own body and flesh was beaming so radiantly that it shone through his clothes. And it says that his face shone, not like a flashlight, but like the sun in the sky. Blinding light. I mean, can you imagine being in the shoes of these three disciples there on that mountain? And guess how they reacted? Oh, hey, Jesus. Oh, hey, you look really nice. You got a nice makeover. No. They fell on their faces, trembling. And decades later, while persecuted and exiled on the island of Patmos, John the Apostle would see a vision of the ascended Jesus in heaven. And he testified in Revelation 1.13, I saw one like a son of man. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. And his right hand, he held in it seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Imagine the person, the appearance, the image that John saw. And how did he react? He tells us, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though I were a dead man. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. You see, Jesus is to be worshipped as the holy, eternal God that he is. There is no other manner of knowing him but as God Almighty of heaven and earth, the one to whom our souls are accountable. He is the one who who is the holy and righteous judge of every man. The one whose eyes are too pure to look upon sin and evil, and yet those eyes look and see all of our sin and evil. He is the one before whom all the angels in heaven tremble with awe and endless praise. This is the man. This is the Jewish man 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the fullness of God in the fullness of his human nature and flesh. Do you know this to be true, beloved? 
Do you believe the testimony of Scripture? Do do you see Jesus as the living, eternal God, the one true God and maker of heaven and earth? And church, this is not just a necessary confession of saving faith, but this is our happiest confession. Because it is in the person of Jesus Christ that we behold the gospel of God's grace revealed to the sinful world. Because the true deity of Christ brings us to the wonder of the incarnation of Christ. That is, that the fact that this man Jesus is truly God Almighty, it demands the question, how is it that God Almighty in heaven could become A man, just like you and me. But that is the gospel. That God so loved the world, even sinful man, that he came down to us, not in the full weight of his uninhibited naked glory, because as sinners lost in darkness, we would perish immediately in the presence of his perfect and holy light. But God in his mercy and tender compassion to us. He came down to us, cloaking himself in the very real frailty of human flesh. That he entered the world born as a helpless little infant through the womb of a virgin, and it was so that he might save us from our sin by standing in the place of sinful man, going to the cross where he would take upon himself the wrath of God meant for sinners like you and me. Because only infinite God can fully absorb the infinite wrath of God on behalf of His people. And that's why He Himself came down. And this is why David's son must be David's Lord. Because only one who is both God and man in one person can redeem sinners from their sin by being the perfect mediator between God and man. You see, if we reject the deity of Jesus, then we reject the work of Jesus, His salvation, His gospel. And so it is essential to the Christian confession that Jesus is God, the Lord of all. And that is our worship that it was God Himself, our Creator, who came to us to bear our sin for us. And He calls us to simply confess our sin, the sin that we could never amend by our best efforts on the best of our days, the sin that we can never atone for. He calls us to confess it and to rest our trust daily in His finished work for us on the cross. And if we have any doubt or question about it, our Lord Jesus proved His divinity once for all without a shadow of a doubt by His resurrection. He rose from the dead just as He said He would. No man can do that. Nothing of nature permits that. But only one who is the ruler of all nature, the Lord over life and death, has the power and authority to do such a thing as conquer the grave. Church, we do not worship a dead Savior, but we worship the risen and ascended Lord of glory. And again, this is, for us, 
our greatest comfort. Because in this life, we will live our days with many unanswered questions. And things may happen in our lives that just don't make sense all the time. I mean, isn't it the case that many people in such turmoil and, and confusion and uncertainty, they cry out, Where is God? Is He there? And if He is, who is He anyway? Because He sure ain't here. But beloved, we can rest our minds and anchor our thoughts in this simple truth. I know who God is. He is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David, who came down to rescue me from my sins. And though I don't have all the answers in life, this I can answer. Where is God? My Lord is in heaven, where He has ascended to be seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me as my great high priest. And He will return one day for me. And He will make all things right. And when He comes, everything will make sense when I see Him face to face. And I don't know much about anything. But I know the only thing that matters, which is that I know the only true God through Jesus Christ whom He has sent. And when it's all said and done, in the end, when He returns to earth a second time, every eye shall see Him coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. And there will be no more question that day of who is Jesus, because all of heaven and earth will make way. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? It is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And may it be that when, when the Son of Man returns, that we would be found worshiping Him, trusting Him, and eagerly waiting for His return. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we thank You for the mystery of Your glory revealed to us your very own triune nature revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that you have helped us to understand and receive him by your spirit who illuminates your eternal truth to us. We thank you that you have come down to us, though we could never ascend to you, that heaven himself came down to this fallen world that we might know you. And even so, still we confess that our, our faith is weak. And so we ask that you would strengthen our faith. And that is what you have done in giving to us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that by it you remind us that indeed you came down to us in flesh and blood. And you gave to us your very flesh and blood, that we might be forgiven of sin, ransomed, taken from darkness into your light to belong to you. O oh Lord, would you now use these ordinary elements of the bread and the cup to remind us of that which we so often forget. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.